Hey everyone, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and you're listening to episode 22 of the audio version of the 100% Wild podcast. And today, we're joined by Terry Drury to chat a bit about our 2016 late season hunting, and then answer a listener-submitted question about dealing with the frustrating intrusion of dogs running through a hunting property. Now, this is a challenge that many of us have had to deal with, and Terry especially. So, with that said, let's get right to this earlier recording. Enjoy. Welcome to the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon with Wired Hunt, and with me as usual is Matt Drury. It's been a while, man. How are you? I'm good, buddy. It has been a while. It's been it's probably been over a month, hasn't it? <laughs> I don't think it's been that long, but we definitely took a little break for the holidays, so yeah. that was nice. Did, did you have a good Christmas and New Year's and everything? We did. It's cool to get to see uh, Cam's two and a half, so it's cool to get to see him ex- kind of experience it for the first time and it was a real fun holiday. We had some illness, you know, in the family there leading into it, but uh, it was all good and even got a few, sneak a few hunts in. So <laughs> it's, it's all <laughs> That is good. And speaking of family, we've got a family member with us today too, right? We do. We got old man winner, Terry Drury, my, my pops. What's up, Dad? Good morning. Happy New Year to everybody. How are you today? You're at the farm, right? Yes, I am. I'm good. We're finally uh, getting a little bit of weather that we've been waiting on for the last three months. <laughs> now that the season's ended, yeah, now it's just about over. <laughs> the season's over, and we have to head to Indianapolis for the ATA show, and then Vegas for Shot Show. Yeah, now the real work begins. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish we'd have gotten this weather about a month ago. Yeah, yeah, for how, sure. How has your hunting been, Terry, in these past couple weeks? You know, I will say it was it was decent up until about the middle of December. And then once uh, mid-December and Christmas holidays hit, it just literally ended. We're still seeing, you know, quite a few antlers, but my, my bucks have literally disappeared. They've all went underground. I, and, and it happens like that every year here on this particular farm. Uh, I know some areas are a little bit different, but man, oh man, it's just, it's brutal right now. Very dismal. Are you, are you getting any we're pictures? Still, we're still trying to have a few does. Are you getting any pictures, though? No, my cameras, literally, after about the uh, 15th or 16th of December, they just died. Uh, all the reconnaissance pictures are just, you know, a few spikes and a lot of antlerless. Where do they go? I don't get it. I don't know. It's just like, do they go into the woods and they hunker down, and <laughs> or do they go to a different property? Because I'm experiencing the same thing on a lease. I just, the pictures have, have really sucked since, you know, well, since late November for me. You know, I would love to radio collar each and every buck on my farm just one year to find out where they do go. I, I think a lot of it is just lack of movement. Once the rut's over and, and this cool weather hits, you know, their their need to feed is still there because of the temperatures, but I'm I'm out of food as well. So uh, it's a it's a mystery, but I think a lot of them just don't move. They just go underground and try and recharge their batteries for quite a while. So when the food source is gone, because I'm kind of getting in this similar situation, my biologic plots are all kind of eaten down and you know, I'm running out of the, the little bit of standing corn that I paid the farmer to leave. So at that point, where do they just stay in the kind of in the timber and eat mass crop or what, you know, browse on just whatever they find right there where they're bedded or what are your thoughts? Well, you know, we had a decent mass crop when it came to uh, pin oaks and uh, some of the red, but for the most part, my white oaks haven't, haven't, I haven't had an acorn come off a white oak tree in about four years now, and I don't understand why. Plus, there's some type of disease that is killing a lot of my oak trees. So we're 
we're suffering as far as the mass crop is concerned, but they're very nomadic here in this particular area. And once your food source is gone, we lose a tremendous volume of deer. The, the density goes literally down to maybe half or a third of what it was during the peak of the season. And we've still got a lot of cover, but we just don't have the numbers that we had. With that being said, our buck to doe ratio is still out of whack. So I'm still trying to manage the, uh, you know, the antlerless, trying to harvest as many does as we can. Yeah. How, if you don't mind saying, and maybe you do, I don't, how many does have you guys harvested up there this year so far? You know, I think all total we're about at 20. I think with, you know, I've had a couple guests in, and I think collectively we're about 20, and we've only shot two bucks. Yeah. So we're working at a 10 to 1 ratio, doe to buck. And I, I don't know too many people that are doing it that aggressively. We're, we've been doing that for 12 years now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've always ran between 13 to 1, 12 to 1, 14 to 1, 10 to 1. I'm, I, I'm always very, very aggressive when it comes to doe management. And it doesn't seem to have any effect. <laughs> you know, we're having twins and triplets. And no matter how hard we try, there's still a lot of does to go around here. Can't so our up. numbers are still up. <laughs> Can't keep up with it. <laughs> That's tough. No. But a 10 to 1 clip is, is pretty aggressive. And you you donate the majority of that to the local share of the harvest, right? You know, we do both. I, because I have, you know, the construction company with construction guys, I usually have, you know, three or four of them processed, and then I take it down to the shop, and we keep it in the freezer all year for chili and meatloaf and tacos and, you know, burgers, whatever we decide to cook up that day if we got weather like this. And in addition to that, we had, you know, Mike Joggers came in and Nolan came in, a grandson. So everybody has a use for deer meat. They live off of it year round. So uh, a lot of them go home with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, how about you? I mean, I, I know that you had a few late season hunts there. Did you have any luck with Holyfield? Yeah. You know, um, Holyfield, it's been a, a long winding story with him. But uh, to make that long story short, I, I've seen him a bunch more. But uh, sometime in early to mid-December, I finally started to kind of finalize my decision on what I want to do with that deer. He made it through so much of the season already that I ended up deciding that I would not try to kill him this year because I thought it was he was so close to making it, and I'd already had a great season, killed a couple bucks, had plenty of venison in the freezer. So, uh, so I decided to, to kind of stop the chase. So I saw him a few more times. I think he made it through the year. And uh, then I just focused on does. So put a couple does in the freezer. And just like Terry, you know, got to do a little bit of that management. We've got that crazy whacked out ratio too here in Michigan with so many does and people, most hunters, just focusing on killing bucks. And unfortunately, lots of young bucks. So I've tried to pass a lot of bucks this year. I've tried to shoot a bunch of does. And uh, we'll see how it pans out in 2017. But I'm just at that point now where I'm just getting geeked for the next season. So I'm already brainstorming about habitat improvements and how I want to move this and adjust that. So, you know, the cycle continues. That's it's funny you say that. I was uh, sitting in my you know, my uh, box blind last night, last time of the year, and I was that was what was going through my mind is like, all right, we need to do this, this <laughs> and this. We need to do this in March. We need to do this in, you know, August. It just it's like we there's so many things that you can do to improve it and I, I, once the season ends it's like all right time to start up for next year yeah i, I kind of love this time of year because like you have this you know, automatic r- refresh of hope what's that terry hey guys i've been trying to do that for 40 years and it never has worked the <laughs> only one that works for are three <laughs> <laughs> yeah i hear you they they had a good year at their place <laughs> oh my gosh yeah this year 
Unbelievable. Have you seen, I, I saw in that live video that uh, Mark and, and Taylor did the other day that they were talking about this has kind of been the fruits of the EHD tragedy a few years ago, and now you're starting to see these deer make it to older age classes, the ones that did survive, and now they're much more healthy because of the fact they grew up in a, a less saturated deer population. Have you seen anything like that, Terry, on your farms? You know, I have not. Uh, the EHD seems like it is it has hit us here three or four years in a row. Mm. So we're not in that recovery phase, and we had a substantial amount of property leased over in Illinois too, and it was even more dismal over there. It was awful. Uh, you know, the worst I've ever seen, where you would sit for evenings at a time and see two two deer, three deer, maybe four deer in several cities. It was just really really bad. So we haven't got into that recovery phase yet. And I don't know how long it's going to take. Sometimes it takes 10 to 15, 20 years before that, that happens. It just so happens we're there out up there. Evidently, EHD went through and, and took a number of them out, but it didn't get them all. And the ones that did live through it seemed to be extremely healthy uh, from what we can tell. So I think it's very, very random as well. And, and from what I've heard and what I've seen this year here in Missouri, you know, a lot of guys were seeing deer last year and then they didn't have them this year. Part of which was, I think, attributable to the fact that they didn't move very well. And the other part to the fact that I think a lot of them got wiped out with EHD one more time this year. So we're really struggling as far as our numbers are concerned when it comes to mature deer. Well, how do you feel like some of the, like in our situation, Missouri, the, you know, the, the Department of Conservation for Missouri, some of the changes that they've made, you feel like that actually will help the cause, you know, going from three bucks down to two or, you know, taking the amount of dough that you can harvest down, you know, it used to be unlimited in, in most of the counties. And now it's, you know, what is it, two per weapon or something like that? I mean, it's, it's way down in, in the amount of deer you can actually harvest. You think that'll actually have an effect? Well, you know, they've got a difficult mission at hand, a difficult task in the fact that they're battling EHD and CWD. You know, we've had a few positives here in the state of Missouri that uh, has thrown a whole different monkey wrench into things. So what they're doing is somewhat counterintuitive. On one hand, they're trying to eradicate a herd in different areas. And on the other hand, they're trying to cut back on the number that you're killing. Uh, so, it, you know, it's almost like they're teetering the scales and it's, and it's a r rather fragile uh, recipe here to try and rectify it. And, and I don't know that there is an answer, to be perfectly honest with you. I think every biologist has got a different strategy, but I know the two strategies they're employing are somewhat counterintuitive depending on what location you're in. You know, they go into areas where the CWD has been recognized and they're trying to eradicate the entire herd in those areas to keep it from spreading. And then yet on the other hand, where EHD was prevalent, you know, they're trying to cut the numbers back so that there's more deer. So it's a really, really fine line. And at the end of the day, I don't know that you can fool Mother Nature. She's going to do her dirty work when she wants to, and she's going to be, you know, give you the rewards whenever you get the opportunity from time to time. But nothing we can do will change what Mother Nature can do in one swift sweep of the hand. I, yeah. I know that. I've seen that over the last 50 years of hunting. For the first time in a long time, well, first time ever, really, I'm seeing more and more people on social media talking about, you know, you shouldn't be harvesting does and our, our population's hurting. I let every doe walk. I want to, you know, help, you know, every doe to have their babies and all this and that. But I think it's different for everybody's 
piece of property. I mean, I mean, yeah. you go to your place or Mark's place and you see 40, 50 deer a night and then a lot of does. You, you, I mean, it's just not the same. My lease last night, we saw 40 deer, you know, this is farmland down by the river and, and we saw 40 deer that, you know, the majority were does. This, there's certain places where that you still need to do your herd management. It, it's so far to, out of whack, you still need to do it. But yet I'm seeing more and more where people are kind of social media war, warriors are kind of chastising people for doe hunting. And I, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know that it, I think it's different for every person's property more than anything. Yeah. It's so site specific. Well, and, and I think that uh, really you're seeing the results of, of the randomness of all of this. You know, here you've got some areas where the deer literally have been wiped out, and that's what we experienced over in Illinois. I mean, the numbers were way down over there, like almost non-existent. So, therefore, we weren't, we weren't harvesting a doe. We, we didn't have the intentions of harvesting does over there. And that's where it becomes, uh, I, I'm going to say, a personal, you know, a personal challenge for each individual to become stewards of the land. You know, you know what your property looks like. You know what kind of numbers you should have there. And when your numbers are cut in half or cut by two-thirds, all of a sudden, you know, a light bulb goes off and says, you know what, I need to cut back on my aggressiveness or my assertiveness. I need to let some does walk. And I think that's what it boils down to, everyone being a steward of their own property, you know, having conservation in mind. But just as you stated, Matt, in certain areas, and that's what I, I referred to early on, that this is very random. In certain areas, the deer density is still very high. They were born on a one-to-one ratio, and trying to get that buck-to-doe ratio in check or in balance is always good, uh, you know, and that's almost impossible in certain areas whenever we're seeing, you know, 15 or 20 does for every buck. Your buck ratio is so far out of whack that you almost can't do it single-handedly. So I think everyone has to look at their own parcel of property and be stewards of the land and think about conservation first and uh, try and do it you know, in some areas as aggressive as they can and in other areas kind of lay off. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. And, and I hate to be, uh, to continue with this focus on challenges, but we have a listener question today, Matt, that's kind of focused on a challenge that I think that, uh, definitely you, Terry, maybe have some insight on. So what do you think about getting to that question, Matt? Let's do it. The question of the day is brought to you by Cabela's, the world's foremost outfitter. Hi guys, my name is Nate Maddox. I hunt South Central Wisconsin. I got a couple questions about dogs uh, interrupting deer habitat and sanctuaries. Namely, I hunt a, a 20 acre public parcel here next to some agriculture, but also adjacent to a really big 60 or 80 acre uh, sort of public park. Um, there's some great funnels leading into this acreage, but around the periphery, there are a couple houses that walk their dogs uh, easily, you know, a few hundred yards into the woods, give them free range. Uh, and I'm wondering how I should treat that, if that's going to, uh, clue the bucks in that that's not a sanctuary or if they're just going to use it, you know, nocturnally or if they start to get programmed to know when the dogs are in there or, or even more comfortable than they would be for humans. I also hunt a 50 acre parcel a couple hours north of here that's private and I'm the only one on there for archery season. But I just found out that uh, the rifle hunters that used that property near the end of November were in there this weekend running about five of their dogs around and it concerns me that we, that had some permanent influence on what was perceived as sanctuary space for the bucks. Appreciate your feedback. Thanks, guys. So, Terry, I understand you've had some experiences like this too, right? <laughs> yes, oddly enough, I have. I've had firsthand experience with dogs. And, and uh, you know, Mark and I literally grew up hunting 
with dogs that we, we started by rabbit hunting. We did a lot of squirrel hunting and we've got a tremendous number of friends that do waterfowling and still a lot of bird hunting. We know, you know, a guy like Chris Dorsey who lives every day for bird hunting. So, you know, being able to hunt with a dog is refreshing. Uh, it boils down to respect, I think first and foremost, and that's just how we were raised. If, you know, if a, if a fellow would let you, a farmer would let you go in there and rabbit hunt and run your dog, that was great. You know, and same way with pheasant hunting out, you know, in South Dakota and, and Nebraska and some of those states. If you got permission, it's one thing. If you don't have permission, it's a little bit different. In answer to his question, uh, I, I would say that you'd have to look at the big picture. Maybe geographically, you would want to Google Earth and go on there and look at, at what he's talking about, these parcels, because I don't know what's around it. Uh, is it more of the same? Is it a suburbia area where the deer are kind of forced to stay in those little bitty sanctuaries or is there big parcels of timber that are around it where they have a, uh, you know, an option to go to. So it changes just a little bit depending on what the big picture is. I would first and foremost say 20 acres is pretty small, but if they're used to seeing those landowners every single day of their life, then they get somewhat, uh, not domesticated, but they get to the point where they will tolerate it, you know, and most of it is smell. You know, if they walk out the door and they smell like bacon and eggs and toast every morning, then that deer is somewhat accustomed to that. If they're if they're not used to that, then by all means, on 20 acres, if they blow out of there, it's going to be hard to get them back. In the same way, conversely, with that 50 or 60 acre parcel that he was referring to as a sanctuary, man, if they went through there with their dogs and they hunted it pretty aggressively, I would doubt very seriously if those deer will be back particularly this time of the year after the firearm season, you know, a few stragglers might pour in there, but man, when they start running, sometimes you can't stop them. I mean, they may go three miles, five miles, seven miles this time of year. It just seems like they run further than they would in the early season. Part of it is because of the lack of cover. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's got a tough situation there, but again, I would go back to the big picture and see what's around it. Is there, are there bigger blocks of timber or is that the only sanctuary area, you know, in that particular general location? And, uh, I would treat it really, really gingerly because they are fairly small parcels. Now, when you had issues with dogs on your farm, I don't know if that's still happening now. I remember seeing it in some videos in the past couple of years. How long did it take for those deer to start returning to their normal habits or what type of impact did you see on your hunting there immediately after that? Well, this was a bigger block of timber. It was a bigger parcel. So what we saw was when the dogs ran through and supposedly they were chasing coyotes, when in reality, many oftentimes they were kept, they were chasing deer because we have video footage of them doing that. And then also caught them with a deer at bay or caught them with a deer on the ground. Wow. Uh, but more often than not, the deer would run two hollows over or three hollows over or maybe a half a mile or, or something, and then they would return because of the, the volume of timber. It was a fairly sizable piece. Uh, but it got to the point where it was it was literally a daily event, and we couldn't hunt our own property. I mean, it was, which boils down to respect. When you can't hunt your own, hunt your own property, and it's because of neighboring dogs, you know, it makes it really, really difficult. When we grew up, we had the respect for the adjacent landowners, and we would knock and ask permission or call and ask permission, and more often than not, they would give you permission. But in this day and age, things have gotten a little more privatized, and it's a little bit different. So it's uh, it's really about having respect for your neighbor and honoring their wishes, because if you're not paying the mortgage, 
and you're not paying the insurance and you're not paying the taxes, you really don't have a right to be hunting there, particularly from a liability standpoint. Uh, you know, so you really got to respect the landowner and what his wishes are. Not only that, but the the hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears through the off season. I mean, the the amount of money that you have to spend just to put in the food plots, or you know, the crops that you plant, or you know, to harvest the crops. It just it just it goes on and on and on. There's more reasons why it makes no sense for someone to allow their dogs to run your property than, you know, and they always, you know, it goes back to, well, you know, they just kind of went where they wanted to go. It's like, okay, you know, I mean, you do have some control over where you unleash the dog. Uh, so I, I don't know that we noticed that the year that you finally kind of got it under control and had to get some uh, authorities involved. And one, when that happened, we noticed the hunting, that was like the best year we had ever had there on the farm for big deer and for seeing big deer. And, you know, then EHD hit and, and it just kind of was unfortunate timing since then. But I mean, that was a really good year we had that year. That's when you killed Chris, and I shot that uh, the the one fifty ten, and I mean that was a fun year. And we thought, hey, it's it's finally back to where you know it was the first year you bought it, but um, EHD got you ever since. Well, and in addition to that, the, the uh, you know the sweat equity and time and money and all that other stuff that goes into it, I was more upset about the guests that we had in camp yeah. and the nerve hunts were ruined. You know, the construction guys came up, all of them are blue-collar guys. They took off time from work to come up and enjoy a hunt, when in reality we spent two days with dogs running through the timber running beer out, and those guys just didn't, didn't have much of a hunt. And same way with guests that would fly in and buy a non-resident tag out of their pocket, maybe have some airline footage or rental or airline costs or rental car, and then all of a sudden their hunt was ruined. It, it, it became, uh, you know, just a, a point, again, getting back to respect and being courteous to your neighbors. Whenever you start hurting other people monetarily and they're out there taking off time from work trying to enjoy a nice hunt in the Midwest, it sends a bad message and a really, really poor signal uh, about neighbors. You know, you just getting back to, you know, an ethical sportsman and being able to respect your neighbor's wishes. I think says a lot, but when you're hurting other guys, like blue-collar guys that are taking time off of work, it's a whole different ballgame. You know, I, I understand it to a certain degree, but when it's every day and you can't hunt your property anymore, that's when uh, I had literally hundreds and hundreds of, of reconics pictures and uh, hours of video footage where guys were in a tree and the dogs had run under them, running deer, and the hunt was ruined. Uh, that's when it got time to, to start getting some other people involved. And this isn't condemning, you know, the, the guys that go run dogs and, you know, predator hunt with dogs. And I mean, you know, it's, it's a fun sport and a lot of people take part of it. It's just a matter of getting back to the respect thing. Hey, do what you want on your piece, but we don't, you know, we're trying to whitetail hunt, turkey hunt. We, this is our living, you know, it's, it, do whatever you want on your piece, but stay off of ours. That's kind of the mentality that we have to, towards it. You know, it's not condemning the dog hunter at all, you know. Yeah. So, so Terry, well, how— And team members, I, I'd say probably half to three-fourths of them are coyote hunters, you know, and we enjoy coyote hunting. Last year, Dylan and Chris Comstock killed a few coyotes here. We went over to Illinois, and, you know, it was—it's it's part of it. We enjoy the sport as well. But we're still going to respect the adjacent landowners. We're not going to do something to offend someone or trespass or, or whatever it may be. But we're still going to enjoy the sport. And we encourage people 
to do the coyote hunting. We enjoy it, and, uh, you know, they're a predatory animal. You know, I wish we could wipe the majority of them out because they're dragging deer down as well. So uh, that's something that I think everybody has to think about very long and hard and say, you know what, I'm still going to go out and do the coyote hunting, but I'm going to knock on a door or ask permission first. It's really not that hard. Yeah. Now, here's here's my question. What if someone's out there right now who's dealing with this kind of issue themselves? They've got a neighbor's dog or, or someone's dogs running around on their property. What kind of action can they take? What did you have luck with when you when it came to trying to stop this issue? Boy, that's a tough one. We, we literally caught those dogs on a regular basis, maybe a dozen times or more. I don't know how many collectively, but... I would, you know, I'd take them back to the landowner and, and give them back uh, and ask that they didn't do it anymore. Unfortunately, it, did, it fell on deaf ears. Uh, so I finally had to document, you know, when it came to all the documentation, and I spent 10 or 12 years of documenting all this with trail camera reconnaissance pictures and video footage, and then I finally had to go to authorities to get it taken care of. And you can lobby to try and maybe get some regulations in place and you know from a conservation standpoint uh or maybe from a a legal or law enforcement standpoint but it takes a long time to get that done and i just i continue documenting it and that's the only really the only recourse you have you know typically if you can solve it you know in a in a really gentlemanly manner that's the way to handle it but if it goes beyond that and and it just doesn't get rectified then you got to try another source but it's it's a hard hard problem to remedy i will tell you that it took me took me 12 years and you always took the high road i mean that's the thing that i don't think a lot of people would have had the patience to take the high road you never harmed an animal you always caught them and took them back you fed them you watered them i mean really went above and beyond i think what the majority of what you know kind of the solution you usually kind of hear amongst friends wasn't a solution for us and uh you know, it just says something, I think, to the point you're trying to make about being neighborly and being, you know, respectful of other people's property. Um, so you led by example, that's for sure. But it, it did take a long time to get fix the problem. And it's really still not 100% fixed. Not 100%, but it has, it has slowed it down and it's deterred it somewhat. But we're dog lovers by nature. We just, you know, Matt knows this better than anybody. The dog that we have now at home gets treated better than we treated the kids. She's so small rotten, not even funny. Yeah. So we're dog lovers, and we grew up hunting with dogs, rabbit hunting, market hunting. That's the way we got our start, squirrel hunting, and, you know, did a little bit of bird hunting. But, uh, you know, it's just it all boils down to that respect thing and being courteous to your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've had similar situations on a property I hunt in Ohio where it hasn't been like an everyday thing, but at least – once a week or something there's two or three dogs that come running through and and it's frustrating but it becomes something that you just kind of have to deal with one way or the other and and what we found at least on this piece was that the deer were used to it in a way like they knew these dogs were going to come through so in the at that moment your hunt was screwed up but you know four hours later or something you you could certainly still see a nice buck or something still coming through it was just one of those deals where in that certain situation in those few minutes or that hour your hunt's kind of screwed and then you, know, you go talk to someone and hope that it won't happen again but uh it's a frustrating thing and i think uh to your point mark or matt and terry you just got to take the high road and, and deal with it the best possible way so matt do you think there's anything else that we need to cover on this one no i mean i, th- I think you know the the basic point here is 
respect your neighbor, you know, and, and, um, it doesn't always work that way. I understand in the real world, some people don't think that way, but you know, you can only control what you can control. So I'd say if you, you go about it, try to do it the, the right way, you know, more times than not sooner or later, it's going to work in your favor. Yeah. And I think to our listener, you know, it's you know, not the end of the world. I would encourage everyone to work with their conservation agent as well. Yeah. At least make them aware of what you're trying to accomplish and what you're doing. Uh, and, and try and, you know, do it the right way. You know, taking the high road was, is the only way. But working with your conservation department, your conservation agent, if they have regulations on the books that they can enforce, sometimes that helps. Uh, many of them do not. But, you know, at least make them aware of it and document it so you've got something going forward. Your best bet's always to have your conservation agent's number and your cell phone, you know, for a multitude of reasons. You know what I mean? They're there to, to try to help. I, I think they kind of get a bad rap a little bit. But, you know, by and large, you, you want to keep them in tune with what's happening on your property. And, and um, they're, they're, they're there to help ultimately. Absolutely. Well, with that, Matt, what do you say we wrap this one up, and uh, and next time we'll talk about something a little bit more fun and, and less of a downer. Does that sound good? <laughs> that sounds good, man. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, my one reminder to everyone would just be that if you have a question that you'd like us to answer on a future episode, just head over to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild, and we'd love to take a look at maybe some questions related to you know, postseason scouting or how to plan for the new year uh, or even shed hunting. Maybe all those things are coming up here and I'm excited about them. I'm sure you are too, Matt. So if you have any questions about that kind of stuff, send them on in. And uh, you can also, of course, check out the latest on Wired to Hunt and across all of our social media platforms. And Matt, what kind of updates do you have? Absolutely. On uh, the 100% Wild podcast, obviously, you can view the video side of it on the Drury Outdoors YouTube page where we have all types of updates. We're doing an original video, a throwback video every week. We have old episodes of Wildlife Obsession, uh, Natural Born, full episodes that we put up each week. So go check it out by all means. It's pretty cool. We're hitting a lot of views every week, and we're going to be doing a lot more uh, of that type of stuff in 2017 here. So by all means, check that out. Our social media, the, the official Drury Outdoors Facebook page. We're doing all kinds of live feeds. And then, of course, uh, at Drury Outdoors on Instagram and Twitter. So one last piece I would like to close with is – if you have any serious hunters out there that have been videoing their hunts and they're looking to maybe try to ha- take their you know, stab at the outdoor video business, uh, shoot me an email at comments at juryoutdoors.com with your reel. Uh, we're looking for some new teams on Jury Outdoors for the first time in a long time and uh, have some pretty cool opportunities and show ideas. So uh, if you're serious and you have a video reel of previous hunts, I'd love to see it. So. That's all I have for today. Very cool. That's an exciting opportunity for sure. And to everyone listening and watching, thanks so much for being with us. And if you're still hunting, good luck. Peace.